Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, it's one thing to eat turkey. It's another thing to release one. A Thanksgiving Disney disaster. Plus, I talked to Emma Corrin, star of a new steamy remake of once banned Lady Chatterley's Lover. Still controversial after almost 100 years. It's very modern. I think it's, I think I, my opinion is if this book came out now, people would be talking about it. But first, one woman's crusade to expose the family that helped fuel the opioid crisis and remove their name from famous museums, as documented by Oscar-winning director Laura Poitras. All the Beauty in the Bloodshed traces photographer Nan Golden's quest to expose the Sackler family's role in the opioid crisis as the Sacklers tried to artwash their name through huge gifts to museums. Through their pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers pushed the highly addictive painkiller OxyContin as if they were drug dealers employed by a cartel. In All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, director Laura Poitras explores Golden's life and career and her activist work through an organization called PAIN. It stands for Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, which staged public protests in museum galleries named after the Sacklers. When I talked with Poitras recently about her film, we started off with the opening scene. So this being radio, we can't see what is happening. Will you describe who the speaker is? It's Nan Golden, what she's doing in this moment and why this is the starting point for your movie. Right. So this is the beginning of the film. Um, Nan is organizing an action at the Metropolitan Museum at the the Sackler Wing, the former Sackler Wing, um, protesting the Sackler name being on the, the walls of the, the Met Museum. And she and her organization called Pain launch a a direct action where they've taken, um, they have these pill bottles and they put these sort of fake um, Oxycontin prescription labels on them that talks about the death toll and the role of the Sacklers and throw it into this sort of body of water that sits within the, the Sacklers. It's like a reflecting pool. Reflecting pool. Thank you. Um, and uh, and this is the first action of of pain um, that that they did. It's the first direct action. It was front page news. And then the the film kind of you know rewinds from there, and we learn about Nan's creating of this organization to shame the Sacklers. If people are unfamiliar with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, I'm going to read the opening statement that Carolyn Maloney, a representative from New York, made in December of 2020 at uh, the Committee on Oversight and Reform for the House of Representatives. 
because I think it summarizes what they did very accurately. And she says, and I'm quoting her directly now, at the behest of the Sackler family, Purdue targeted high-volume prescribers to boost sales of OxyContin, ignored and worked around safeguards intended to reduce prescription opioid misuse, and promoted false narratives about their products to steer patients away from safer alternatives and deflect blame toward people struggling with addiction. And most despicably, Purdue and the Sacklers worked to deflect the blame for all that suffering away from themselves and on the very people struggling with the OxyContin addiction. So that's what Purdue and the Sacklers did or are accused of doing. How does art figure into the other part of the Sackler story? Right. Um, you know, it's a long story. It goes back. Um, it's sort of uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, a renowned journalist who uh, has written the book Empire of Pain and is interviewed in the film. He sort of la- he, he sort of charts the history of the Sackler family. And it goes back before OxyContin. Arthur Sackler um, develops this kind of, you know, playbook for marketing prescription drugs to doctors. Um, and he does this with the with Valium. And then he also creates this database system where you can see who is overprescribing. Um, and then you, you know, sort of double down on marketing to them because you can make more money and this sort of whole kickback scheme. And then, you know, fast forward to OxyContin, they um, pressure the FDA to put this label on it that downplays the addictive properties of OxyContin. And then they start aggressively, aggressively marketing this drug and downplaying its addictive properties so that it's being prescribed, not for people who are post-surgery or who are dealing with terminal illness, right? Where, you know, you need these drugs. I mean, these drugs are important, right? For people who are really suffering, but for like minor ailments. And in terms of your question about the art world, you know, the Sacklers are very um, cleverly, you know, are making their money through the sale of these drugs, but disassociate, you know, keep their name sort of out of the press or like you don't, you know, it's like Purdue Pharma is kind of the you know, the company, but you don't, they, they keep a very low profile in the sort of how they make their money. And then there's a sort of art washing of the blood money into cultural spaces, museums, and also universities and medical schools. So you have the Sackler wing at multiple museums, you have research centers at universities um, with well, hiding the kind of where the money comes from. I want to play another clip. This is Nan Golden talking about her organization, Pain. I've started a group paying to hold them accountable. To get their ear, we will target their philanthropy. They have washed their blood money through the halls of museums and universities. And she's kind of borrowing a page from the ACT UP playbook in terms of civic disruption, I guess you could call it, acts of protest. So what happens and what is the first museum that pays attention to what Nan is saying and says maybe she has a point? Yeah. Um, so what you just read is she does this manifesto. She publishes it in art form, which is rare. I mean, I think we, it's important to note that not that many artists with like, you know, substantial power in the museum spaces are like going in and disrupting them. You know, it's like we, we could use a little bit more of it in, in the world we live in. Um, you know, but the response to the museum, to the, like the Met doesn't respond. None of the museums respond after they first do actions. And, you know, it's not until over a year into the existence of pain and they, they keep going into these museums and um, causing these disruptions. And, you know, the first museum is the National Portrait Gallery in London. 
they were going to do a retrospective of Nan's work and Nan publicly, I think she says it publicly, like I won't do my retrospective if they take a $1.3 million grant from the Sacklers. And, you know, to their great credit, the National Portrait Gallery publicly says we're not taking the money. And it's like, you know, headline news, like National Portrait Gallery rejects this money from the Sacklers. And then, you know, it's interesting, like I'm always interested, you know, what is it? what does it take? You know, what is it like, what are the tipping point moments, right? That where everybody who's kind of like aligned, who's like trying to pretend something is not happening. And then they, you know, they, they shift their perspectives and that was the tipping point. And then after the national portrait gallery, the Tate announces they won't take money, the Met, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the end of the story, you know, in the film, because, you know, right after that, I mean, first of all, Payne is like, okay, great. You're not taking the money. Let's take down the name. But then of course they're like, no, we can't take that. You know, we've have a contract. We can't do that. So, but not only that, but like right after that, Nan and Megan Kapler, who you meet in the film as part of Payne, you know, start to, to notice that they're being followed, you know, and that there's um, guys, you know, there's, there's very obvious surveillance, you know, which when, when you're dealing with very obvious surveillance, there's one reason for it. It's intimidation. Right. I mentioned earlier how Carolyn Maloney, uh, the congresswoman from New York, talked about how the Sacklers blamed the addicts themselves. And you seem to make a very specific choice not to talk about how people in this organization got addicted. Tell us about that decision because it is clearly a choice that you make. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Like there was like, we had no interest in this being a film that, you know, is about sort of, you know, like we wanted this to shift the shame, that the shame belongs on the Sacklers and the family and the boardrooms and the people who are, you know, who've allowed this, you know, dangerous drug to be misprescribed, you know, that, that, that the shame belongs on the government. And quite frankly, it also, you know, our representatives have failed. You know, I mean, Maloney's comments were, what, in 2019? I mean, that's uh, late. Game. 20, 2020. It's 2020. I mean, this was a drug that was known to be, you know, abused from the early 2000s. I, I just, where was the Justice Department? Where are elected officials? Why were the Sacklers allowed to, you know, um, influence how, you know, the FDA labeled their drug? And so, you know, it's a, it's a story really about society and, and um, U.S. society in particular and, and how, you know, as Nan says, you know, the billionaires get to decide, you know, the rules of the game, you know, in the justice system. And, they get away with it. Ultimately, they get away with it. Nobody, nobody's being charged with a crime, you know, even though the company itself has been found guilty of crimes. That was Laura Poitras, director of the new documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's in limited theaters December 2nd and in wider release on December 9th. Coming up, a steamy new romantic drama based on a 1928 novel. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
The D.H. Lawrence novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, is a story of a sexual relationship between a working-class man and an upper-class woman. When it was first published in 1928, it was censored immediately, banned as obscene in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, India, and Japan. A new movie adaptation of the novel reminds us why it was considered so subversive. Just as Lawrence wrote it, the film is unafraid to depict physical passion in a sex-positive woman. The movie is directed by Lord de Clement-Tonnerre. Emma Corrin, whose pronouns are they and them, plays Lady Chatterley. They also starred as Princess Diana in the fourth season of The Crown. I spoke with Corrin about Lady Chatterley's lover at the Telluride Film Festival. I want to ask about modernity, about making a period story contemporary, because it isn't. But I think there's a way in which you and the actors be- act and the way you speak that feels very modern. And there's something about the first shot of you in terms of your hair that feels very contemporary. And this is still a period film, but was that something that was even discussed about how this is actually just as modern a story as any story is told Totally, Okay, yeah. how did that come about? What were the conversations? I think when we f- I first met Law and we sat down and we sort of thought about like why this we're making- This is your director? So yeah, Laura, our director, we sat down and thought about why are we making another one? Like, why? And since we are, then like, how do we make it different and why do we want to make it different? And um, I think that a lot of that was in our approach to, yeah, Connie and her journey. And I think that... um, I don't know. I think a lot of it had to do with costume as well. We wanted to make it feel... And also because we were filming in this place in Wales and we were very lucky, it very rarely happens that you're shooting in one particular location. The manor house we were shooting at down had... Right outside it was this hill that you go down and then at the bottom was the river. So we didn't move. And it meant that it sort of felt like we were in some kind of place that existed out of time. And once we started shooting there, that's something we discussed, that this could almost exist out of time. And I think that there's a way that law describes the film and the book, which is that it's timely and also timeless. And I think that's what we wanted to capture. And I think Emma Fry really did that with the costumes as well. A lot of the dresses were, they have a nod to the period, but most of them you can buy online. Like it's, she did such a beautiful job in blur, like the joining of those two worlds. I think people who don't, know the book that well would assume that part of what Lady Chatterley's motivation is in having an affair is that her husband is injured in the war, World War I, and is rendered impotent, that he is paralyzed mm-hmm. from the waist down. But that's not. This, her, I'm not going to say her issues, her desires precede that greatly. Yeah. Um, and I noticed in watching the film, the first three instances where your character is having sex, she initiates the contact every time. Yeah. She's the first to move. She's the first to put mm-hmm. out her hand or show somebody else where they should yeah. put their hand. She is the initiator. She is not only has a libido, she's not only sex positive, but she wants to get things going. Yeah. She wants to get things going. And then there's an also really interesting nuance. I think also right, and that's something that we really wanted to celebrate, that like... Yeah, Connie, it's totally fine and, of course, justified that Connie wants a sex life. She wants to have sex. It's a huge part of an intimacy. It's a huge part of a relationship between two people. And and not only that, but there's also this like other side to it when she starts having sex with Oliver. There is a part of her that 
still isn't allowing herself to fully experience it. And that's something that we talked about with the journey of her sexuality during the film. That she feels guilty or that she feels... That she's never... She she knows she wants to have sex and that she has a desire to. And she has, as you say, that like she longs for physical contact. But I think for her, she's never truly been able to access her own pleasure. Maybe she's never been with anyone who has really asked her what she wanted or, or made her stay in her body. And I think especially with her relationship with Clifford is probably he makes her feel ashamed of wanting those things as she says in the film. And so we talked about how when she first has sex with Mellors for the first few times, she's sort of not, she's there, she initiates it, she wants it, but during it, she's elsewhere. Right. And then that scene where they're both in the woods and finally he's like, look at me, engage with me. We're in this together. You don't have to disappear, you're here. And so like, yeah, there's a, there's like nuance within it, which was nice to have that journey through those scenes. It's one thing to write a novel about a character who has desire Mm -hmm. and is very sex positive. It's another thing to write a screenplay about that. And it's quite another thing to perform that. So in terms of creating, I don't know if you want to call it safe place. I don't, that seems not quite the right word, but a place where you can, and your co-star can feel that they are being faithful to the story and they have what they need as performers and people to feel safe. How do you go about creating that? And what are the conversations that were important to you? I mean, it really was all the intimacy coordinator, um, Ita O'Brien, who worked on Normal People. And she has sort of been at the um, forefront of the movement of why intimacy coordinators are so essential. And this is my first time doing this amount of nudity in this this many sex scenes in one project, if ever. And, um, and I was so blown away by how much I relied on and felt so grateful for her involvement. And I sort of, the way I describe it is like, it's almost as, she approached it the same way as you would like a stunt, you know? You're going to move here. This person's hand is going to be there. Exactly. If you're choreographing a fight, you don't just say, guys, go for it. Have a good time. Hope you feel safe. No, you break it down bit by bit because you know that there, more often than not, things would go wrong. And it's exactly the same thing. And everyone has their own relationship with their body and what they feel comfortable with or don't feel comfortable with. And it's really important to honor that and to recognize it and to talk about it. And yeah, she broke it down beat by beat. And we sort of said, you know, I'm, you can touch me here and here, but absolutely not here. And once we had those things settled, then yeah, walk through it beat by beat. And so we all knew how all the scenes would go. So there were no surprises and everyone was comfortable. And also once those things were in place, it's such a blessing because you can have freedom within it. D.H. Lawrence's book is still banned because of, in some places, or it's just been recently unbanned. It's still banned in elementary schools in the States because of what it has to say about sex. And let's just say the United States is not alone in how it views sex compared to violence. And it's something Mm -hmm. that is a huge issue in films, that movies that have very loving and accurate and nonviolent depictions of sex are labeled and C-17, they're not, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to see it unless you're an adult over a certain age, but you can kill how many thousands of people you want yeah, you can in, a, in a Marvel movie and you get PG-13. Yeah. So knowing that's the circumstances, how does this movie get to an audience? I mean, I would love my kids, they're 22 and 18. Mm. I, would, I think this is a movie that 16-year-old yeah. girls need to see. It's interesting, I was in a film seminar earlier and it was so nice, Such um, these students from the AFI and someone said, I was, I just was watching it and wishing I'd seen it when I was 16. And I think that's also something I felt when I read the script was like, I've never seen this. 
And God, I feel like this is stuff I'm still discovering about myself because it's never been a discourse in society. It's never been something I've been able to see. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I would say, yeah, if you're a parent listening to this, show your kids because it, it's, it's good. It's, it's, yeah, it's positive. That was actor Emma Corrin. Lady Chatterley's Lover is available on Netflix now. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. Thanksgiving was a full week ago, but you still want to talk this morning about a turkey. This is a turkey at the box office from (laughs) our friends at the Walt Disney Company, and it involves this movie. I'm not my father. He was the explorer. I know you were just a kid when you went missing, but now you're all we got. That was Strange World. It opened Thanksgiving weekend to some of the worst ticket sales in the history of the Walt Disney Company. So there are estimates that look at audience interest before a film opens, and those estimates were pretty grim. They said that the movie, uh, which has the voice talents of Jake Gyllenhaal and Gabriel Union, might gross as little as $40 million over the five-day Thanksgiving weekend, Wednesday to Sunday. Those projections were a little optimistic, even as low as they were, because the movie opened to $18.9 million over the five-day weekend. And for the three days, it did about $12.2 million. And overseas, Strange World was equally unpopular. And that means that Disney will probably have a huge loss in the movie. It cost about $180 million to make, tens and tens and tens of millions more to release and market. And, you know, when you think about Disney bombs like Lightyear, which did, you know, three times that business in its opening weekend, Encanto, which was also a flop, did better over its opening. So it's a very poor opening for Disney and a really bad opening for a very expensive movie. Uh, especially a tough blow for the animation division because their kinds of movies use to deliver reliable and huge returns for the Walt Disney Company. What's happening? Well, let's talk about those returns. Incredibles 2 in 2018, and this is just domestic box office, $609 million. 2019, Frozen 2, $477 million. Toy Story 4, which didn't get great reviews, $434 million. You notice one thing, these are all pre-pandemic movies. So what happened during the pandemic is, like a lot of companies, Disney decided to change its release strategy. So movies that we're going to open in theaters, they put either immediately on streaming or on very brief theatrical runs. And they did that with some Pixar movies that went straight to streaming. So if you're an audience member who loves Disney animation, loves Pixar, loves animated family films, and you've been a Disney customer for a long time, you would say to yourself, why would I want to go to a theater? It's going to come to Disney Plus in a week or a month or so. So I think Disney really kind of killed itself at the box office by doing so many direct-to-streaming releases. And when you make a movie that expensive, to release in a theater like Strange World, it costs a fortune. 
And if you don't release in a theater, it doesn't really have a profile. So Disney is kind of darned if you do and darned if you don't. And Strange World is considered a good movie. It got positive reviews for the most part. It's 73% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and there are a lot of very well-reviewed movies that are also having a hard time at the box office. I've talked about a lot of them. Uh, Armageddon Time, Tar, She Said, The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's new movie. People are not going to the theaters, and it's really important if you like adult dramas to go see those movies because those movies aren't going to get made. Animated movies will still get made, maybe at a lower budget point. But yes, it has been a very tough year for everything at the box office outside of the big hits like Black Panther. And Wakanda Forever is a big hit for Disney. So it's mixed news. It is mixed news, but I think that's part of the problems that Bob Iger, who a week and a half ago was called in to replace former CEO Bob Chapek uh, running the company, faces. I mean, there is a big market for blockbusters, but the real problem is Disney has spent $8 billion launching Disney Plus and its other streaming platforms, lost $4 billion on streaming in the last year alone. Amazon just announced that it's going to spend a billion dollars each year toward theatrical movies. Netflix is spending a fortune. So how do you get audiences to come to your streaming platforms when you're raising prices, the cost of production are really high, and you need new subscribers? That is the problem that every company is facing, and especially the problem for Bob Iger at Disney. You think you have this, you know, this golden goose at the theater with movies like Strange World, and now they're not working. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.